to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the UK, where I teach at Westminster Theological Center. And I am co-host of the podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. And together we form a sort of biblical studies interested collective. And it's been a real joy to do this. So I just want to say that um, it's uh, OnScript is a, is a lot of fun to do. I love getting together with the other hosts, meeting new scholars or scholars that I haven't met before, those who are friends as well, and just connecting over good books and ideas and important stuff. So uh, it's been a joy. And thank you so much to all of you who listen and, and help make this possible, uh, either through just your encouragement or through giving or whatever. Um, so things are starting to to get chilly around here, especially here in the UK. You know the heating's on. We've uh, we've started the fire recently, our wood burner. So uh, it's that time of year where you just want to curl up with a mug and listen to your favorite podcast, and uh, which is on script, obviously. So one of the things that some of you have expressed an interest in is an on script mug. And, you know, I, I guess you could probably just go make your own by going online, you know, rip our logo off the web and stick it on a mug. But maybe you want one that, that we authorize. You know, maybe that's, that's somehow, like, connected to us more in a more personal way. So if that's, if you are of the mug type, uh, I'm a mug person, so this is how I think. Um, if you're of the mug persuasion and want to, and you'd be interested in buying one, Maybe you could just shoot us an email um, at uh, onscriptpodcast at gmail.com and we'll get a sense of like who's interested and then we can um, maybe make them. Uh, or maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll already have made them. So, all right, enough of that. In this episode, Matt Bates and I interview Chris Seitz, who uh, I've read for a number of years and had never met until this episode. So uh, it was a privilege to interview Chris and... Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get on with it. Hello, OnScript listeners. We've got a fresh episode coming at you. I'm Matthew Bates, your co-host for this episode. Alongside me on the other side of the globe, I have my friend and your other co-host, Matt Lynch. Say something to delight and amuse our audience, Matt. Mm, Matt, um, I think I think the time will come and indeed has already come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear and so for that reason i'm not gonna i'm not in the business of amusing and delighting wow was that directed at me this uh itching ears yeah business? slightly yeah yeah <laughs> seriously uh we are very pleased to welcome christopher seitz to on script chris has written a stunning new book the elder testament Canon, Theology, Trinity. So I was eager to pull him onto the show to talk about it. Welcome to On Script, Chris. Thanks. Good to be here. Now, Chris, the last time I saw you was some three years ago, I think, in Toronto. You, Ephraim Radner, Amy Peeler, David Moffat, and I were having a stimulating conversation about Canon, Trinity, and whatnot. But then I had to dash off to catch a cab, leaving in what seemed to be midstream, at least to me. Uh, tell us what you've been doing recently. 
Well, I'm continuing my work at Toronto. I, I have um, six graduate students at various stages, two about to finish, uh, two in the middle, and two at the comps phase. And I've, that's all I do at Toronto is I finish five or six students. I have these, and I have, oh, I'll take on some more, I think. Um, but uh, my wife and I live in uh, south of Paris, and I'm doing some teaching at uh, Centre Sev, which is the Jesuit uh, Institute in Paris. And Matt, you will know a bit about that because de Lubac and, and others uh, dear to our hearts uh, have taught there, and, and it's an exciting place. But it means I have to uh, get my French uh, up to speed to do that well, although all French people seem now to be pretty comfortable with English. So we're here. I just finished this book. Uh, like you, I, it, alongside my teaching, I've got a number of ongoing projects. Um, I've got a lot of graduate students, for some reason, who are interested in Ecclesiastes. So I've had to, to uh, read the history of interpretation and, and uh, make up my mind a bit about that book. Uh, so that's one area of my uh, present thinking and working. Uh, I don't know why, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It may be a book given our age that, uh, uh, I, I think it always has been a favorite, Luther and Jerome and others, but it may be that it's despair, uh, so, so to say. I don't think it's a despairing book, but it, it certainly is a book that probes around uh, death and despair and pointlessness, and, and it may be just very resonant right now. I find that particularly true with younger students who you would think um, uh, that w was not the case. So um, I guess that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. My, um, uh, we're enjoying our time here and uh, I, I try to get back and forth. I've just come back from Toronto. Uh, I think I may have mentioned uh, last week. So I do try to get over and see, see my students from time to time. Well, thanks for that update. I think you're right about sort of the existential heft of Ecclesiastes being something that's arresting. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, I had a marvelous time with you in Toronto. I do. My most vivid memory, though, I have to say, was probably, uh, you know, we were having this colloquium on Hebrews, which, which in fact, um, was generous of you to invite me, although I'm not exactly sure uh, why I was pulled in there, uh, as I, I don't uh, have a ton of expertise on Hebrews. For instance, I don't even know who wrote it. Uh, you know, uh, so... <laughs> oh, my word, <laughs> No, Matt. but it was generous of you. I think that you, you were wanting me to speak a little bit on the use of the Old Testament in Hebrews uh, and whatnot. Um, but my most vivid memory is that uh, I had gotten up there and was, you know, winding up in terms of my, uh, my lecture presentation, and somehow I managed to knock my water cup like send it just absolutely flying off the podium uh, as I must have been gesturing with my hands or, or something. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, people were rushing up to help me, probably including you, uh, you know, trying to save me the embarrassment. Uh, so, yeah, maybe that's a question I have for you. Have you ever had a guest do anything quite as awkward as that? You know, please tell me that, you know, you've had somebody else, you know, who has, uh, you know, managed to come up there and have their fly down or maybe a huge piece of lettuce on their teeth. Uh, or or is, that the, is that the maximum <laughs> amount of awkwardness that you've seen? I don't, uh, to be frank, I don't remember it. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's it good. May, may have been just one of those things. Uh, 
George Limbeck at Yale was sort of notorious for the egg on the tie, and, and uh, he liked to lecture looking out the window, too. I think uh, some people form their ideas better when they're not, you know, when they're sort of staring into middle space. But don't get me off on stories about faculty at Yale that the, uh, they were all good public speakers. I think it came with the era. But, and they all had their, they all had their eccentricities, uh, like Lindbeck and Childs. Uh. Yeah, you've got to tell us at least one good Childs story that we haven't heard before, you know, at some point here. If you've got one, you better start thinking about one. Because oh, I've, we're, got, we're gonna wanna... I've got two or three at the ready. Do you? You yeah. want to do one right now, or do you? Or do you? Go ahead and give us one right now. Brevard Childs is an icon in the discipline, and I think we all want to hear more about Childs. Well, Childs uh, lived out in the country with Lee Keck and Lou Martin and uh, Paul Manier and others. These are all great names, and uh, he was a bit of an antique. His uh, his tastes and his manner were patrician and formal. And he, had an, he loved uh, a particular uh, tweed jacket, and his wife uh, famously, when he wasn't looking, took it to the uh, rummage sale and uh, put it on the, on the rack. And um, she was quite surprised when a week later he showed up with the jacket on, so excited about this find he had discovered in a rummage sale. <laughs> So that was oh, that's great. That was the kind of uh, great. absent-minded but uh, uh, fun kind of a guy. But, but there are lots of stories uh, about those characters, Lee Keck and, and those names. I'm sure you you all know well. Paul Manier. That Paul Manier, he delivered eggs in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, he had his own chickens, and uh, it's uh, it was a marvelous little. They could do a sitcom or something about that little territory out in the in the country where they all lived. Yeah, well, thanks. That's a delightful story. I, I had a, a small drop out there, so I caught most of it. Um, and but I'll I'll certainly um, be wanting to hear uh, the fullness of that. But uh, the story about the tweed jacket certainly uh, a great one for us to take take away. Um, now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just do a little formal introduction so the audience uh, has a sense of, of who Chris is. Uh, Christopher Seitz is a senior research professor at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto, positions he's held since 2007. Previously, he was professor of Old Testament at Yale and at the University of St. Andrews. He's also an ordained Episcopal priest. He serves the church and academy in a whole slew of ways. Let me just mention some of his books. Um, Joel in the International Theological Commentary Series, Colossians in the Brazos Theological Commentary Series, The Bible is Christian Scripture, uh, The Character of Christian Scripture, uh, published by Baker, uh, The Goodly Fellowship of Prophets, uh, also a Baker title, uh, and the list could go on and on. Um, it's fair to say uh, that you've published a ton, Chris. Um, and what I'm wondering is, do you see this book, The Elder Testament, the one we're discussing today, uh, The Elder Testament, Canon, Theology, and Trinity, do you see this as something uh, a, 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 like a pinnacle toward which you've been building? Uh, or do you, have, uh, do you think a higher platform you're reaching toward in the future? Well, thanks, uh, Matt. I, th I think the... Um uh, the book's in three parts, um, and so I think in some ways the third part, which has to do with uh, trying to hear again the, the conceptual framework, 
that the fathers of the church uh, rather instinctively gravitated toward, that's a project that really would have no end, isn't it? I mean, it, it, uh, to, to re-enter this frame of reference, um, I think the, the idea was, uh, I think, shared quite widely that the Old Testament was really unfathomable when it came to declaring its Trinitarian or Christian sense. And it, I think, you know, I, I try to deal with this in the first part of the book and in the third part of the book. And I think some of it is really uh, simply the sense held by the Christian church. And I think in, in some measure, given its Gentile character in, in, the, in the course of time, uh, this real sense of, it, of being privileged uh, of having a library card is a metaphor that I use. And what this meant was that this book that Jesus had opened uh, to them in this mysterious way, since Luke doesn't even give any examples of the exegesis, I think that's also quite, uh, quite intentional. It is though he was saying everything from beginning to end in this book has some bearing or reference to me. Uh, now, traditionally, that has been taken to mean it points somehow away from its own temporal frame of reference toward another point in time uh, under Pontius Pilate, uh, to, to quote the creed. But that's not what, uh, what Luke meant uh, or Jesus meant uh, in Luke's rendering of it. He was really referring to an aspect of the Old Testament that you know well from your own work in the birth of the Trinity and elsewhere, namely the sort of the logos asarkos, the, the, the word uh, in, at work sacramentally inside of this book. And that uh, insideness reached across every chapter and verse in some way, uh, as the fathers tended to read this. And as you know, for someone like Origen, the more difficult it might be to find that sense-making, the more prayer and devotion. And indeed, in a way, uh, it's, in his view, that's where the Holy Spirit would most likely go to work, uh, precisely because the Christological sense-making uh, felt elusive or difficult, uh, and famously, you know, it, it places where we in our uh, conceptual impoverishment might say, well, that book really has no uh, Christ sense-making. A book like Leviticus, that's the absolute first place that he went. Why? Because blood is the most important thing in the Bible, uh, his blood, and therefore any blood references are all to do uh, with him. And this is a frame of reference you know well from your own work, but that has fallen out. Uh, To use the term historicism has got problems, but certainly a a view of time and history and sense-making that has no room for typology or for doubling back or for uh, or for 
God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the ontological dimension is a, is a form of history that has thinned out uh, rather radically uh, what it means for God to be at work uh, in Israel and in the church. And so that, it, it's a long, it's a sort of long-winded, but that third part of the book, uh, you know, you have your examples that you work through, uh, and one, one could go anywhere uh, at the end of the day and continue that. I would say that the first, the middle part where I deal with uh, the canonical form and the legacy of historical criticism I, I think it would be fair to say that that does probably, for me, sum up uh, some, some things that I had worked on in character of Christian scripture and goodly fellowship and my work in Isaiah and other places. Um, but it's funny, when I started to write this book, that was the place where uh, I felt as though I wanted to make some some simple and straightforward observations about the limits of the historical critical method, but also its promise when it's harnessed to a canonical reading. And I, what I found was in working with editors, it was not it wasn't received as a simple reading. <laughs> It, I, I was presupposing way too much, according to the editors. Uh, I had hoped to produce an account of the Old Testament that one would read in their third year of seminary or something where having drunk deeply out of the JEDNP and all the secret arts of, uh, of critical method, this would be a yes but, or a darn right but there's more to be said. And in a way, uh, the editors, uh, one or two anyway, said, no, you, <laughs> you're asking too much of your readers. Uh, uh, so, uh, in a way, the book is three books. There's, but I, I, I do think the three books are definitely uh, feed, in, and feed into one another. I, I don't think they're, uh, it's not, it's, it's my... This is going to date me, but when I was growing up, <laughs> there was something called Neapolitan ice cream, uh, and it was uh, you got the carton and you opened it up, and it had chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, and uh, they were <laughs> they were three separate sleeves of of things, and if you mixed them all up, it turned brown. Um, it's not that kind of a book. I, I do think the sections are related to one another. Uh, and, but I think what I have said on the canonical form in the middle on the Torah prophets' writings, I'm content that that uh, summarizes a lot of my thinking. Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say that, um, that you, you're correct when we say we can't exhaust everything that a, a kind of a recovery of patristic exegesis and, um, you know, kind of moving into that mode might might be able to do for us theologically, right? We're still just, uh, I think, entering into the first phases of that uh, as scholars, and um, it's already exciting to see what's uh, begun to emerge here. I'm going to hand it over to Matt Lynch and see if Matt Lynch has a question that he wants to drop on you here. Yeah, um, Chris, I 
Uh, at several points in the book, you describe the uh, ontological pressure of the Old Testament's literal sense, um, uh, presumably upon the reader and upon the New Testament. And I'm, I'm wondering what if you could explain what that that phrase means. There's a it's a pretty hefty um, uh, phrase there, ontological pressure um, of the Old Testament's literal sense. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could unpack that for us. In an essay that I uh, did for uh, Oxford Press on the Trinity in the Old Testament, uh, I think I was testing this ground a bit. Uh, it's it's not not far from uh, a lot of the work that's going on now. Richard Baucom's book on uh, God Crucified. That is, let me see if I can what I can do with this. Because the Old Testament is talking about a personal God, and yet it is resisting any notion of polytheism, which arguably brings in the relational and the personal and the active, uh, it has a peculiar kind of monotheism. Because on the one hand, uh, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, he alone is Lord. Uh, it's not a surprise, I think, that in the Gospels when Jesus summarizes this, right after it is the debate over the referent to Psalm 110. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And sitting in that space between those two affirmations is this ontology because on the one hand, God is one and only one, yet in his relationship with his people, his ontology, his being, is spilled out as sacrificially and personally as language can find uh, language for. And that's, that's what the Old Testament is about. It's achievement in, in taking and exploring this. So... I mean, examples are always helpful, I think. Uh, in beginning, Bereshit, bara, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is not wrongly heard by John 1, because God in his self is speaking himself forth into the world, and therefore beginning is both a temporal category, but also a category of agency. Enarche, ein halagas, kai halagas. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is the way the Old Testament itself is trying to explain how a God creates, and in creating shares himself with the world, that he's making, and the book is in some ways simply an effort to see, uh, in very few instances, I again to return to the previous comment, one could go a lot of places. I just tended, I gravitated toward the ones I thought in the tradition had been most, uh, seen as most uh, full uh, of potential. Proverbs 8 that one is also really intriguing because it's not really ever used in the way it's used in the tradition by the New Testament. 
So it's also for me, this is really important that the New Testament become, uh, as it were, across its entirety, representative of a kind, a species of reading, but is not exhausting what the Old Testament has to say Christianly. So Proverbs 8 for me is, is really exciting because it's the text uh, that really did the most service for ontology uh, in the church. So, so it's a basic... Sorry, sorry yeah. to cut in here, but I'm just wondering, so it's an idea of pressure, so going back to the phrase of the ontological pressure, the Old Testament's literal sense, that this isn't, that understanding the Old Testament in Trinitarian terms is not just something that's being kind of read back into the Old Testament, a force, you know, shoehorned into the Old Testament, but rather that the Old Testament itself is positing curious situations of multiplicity around the divine identity that that then lead people to reflect on the nature of those texts in and eventually in trinitarian terms yeah that's a that for me is a, a really a crucial point that's why again proverbs 8 is an important text because uh, it's so richly representative of this way of thinking and yet it isn't reliant upon the New Testament's own uh, use of it in the same rich way. But, no, absolutely, and as you will know, I think extremely uh, useful in this regard is the dialogue with Trifo. That Trifo was quite content uh, to argue that a Christian reading of the Old Testament was a possible one if that was where you were starting from. And Justin refused to give the ground on this. He said, no, 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 this arises from the literal sense. Uh, One could simplify this, but in a way, I think Trifo was a kind of reader response person who said, if you want to see it that way, that's fine by me. Uh, and, And Justin said, there is no alternative but to see it this way. This is where the conceptuality of the Old Testament goes. It, 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 um, and I, so, so I think, uh, absolutely. Now, one of the, one of the, there, are two, there are two issues here. There's the, simple, the simpler one that you're pointing out, namely, uh, does the Old Testament do this work off its own grammar and syntax? Then there's another one that says, something like it's allowed to do this work if the new testament provides a warrant for showing how the mind of paul works or uh, i have in view here richard hayes and others i'm not i'm not dismissing that but i don't think that the instinct of the fathers was something like let's think how paul's mind is working exegetically I think they just saw the work that he did and said, this is a species of something that we need to, to, uh, to pursue. Uh, I, I say in the book on several occasions, I don't think Paul expected us to imitate his methods. I think he thought that the Old Testament was an authority which has the ability 
to both be consonant with what he's saying, but to go on saying more. Uh, and, and that that's its job. Its job is forever to continue to, uh, to address the church with Jesus Christ, uh, the one who in time will come uh, in the flesh. There's, uh, the other side of that, too, is that I'm not sure that I think we misunderstand our point of standing. We don't relate to Jesus Christ today as though we were uh, standing alongside self-confident apostles. Even they only knew the Lord through sacrament and scripture. Uh, that is, that's what broke open his, himself to them. The incarnation isn't like, in a way, you're too close to the light. Uh, it's, it's, it's obviously the case for John, for example, that the scriptures were delivering these things about him, but it would take his death, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit for, the, for those who were around Christ to, to see this sense-making. Uh, so I'm also fighting against a, a, a real presence of Christ in the New Testament that's somehow thicker rather than simply different than what the Old Testament itself is declaring. Both of them deploy signs and figures uh, to make known the, the triune God. I was wondering, Chris, um, in light of that, uh, one of the things that I think might be helpful for our listeners and for us um, would be to hear you unpack a little bit more uh, the difference between ancient sensibilities about narrative and the historical sense versus the literal sense versus modern ones, especially Enlightenment sort of readings. Um, what's, the, what's the difference there? What's the sort of the animating force of patristic literal sense uh, and how that differs from contemporary notions of the literal sense? That's a genius question. And I, I do think that in the wake of the Reformation, one of the things that happened was that authorial intention became historicized. So it was no longer... I mean, authorial intention was meant to be a safeguard against allegorizing or uh, dogmatizing the literal sense of Scripture. But when Luther, in the first wave of the Reformation, the authorial intention was a rather simple idea. All the letters of Paul were Paul's, uh, had Paul's authorial mind at work in them. Moses somehow authorized the entirety of the books associated with him. If you had asked uh, uh, Jerome, uh, how did Paul, how did Moses write Genesis since he w wasn't alive yet? That I mean, right away, that's a, it goes to show you a, a, that's a modern frame of reference. When da when Calvin says that David prophesies Christ. He's not probing the mental apparatus of the author of the Psalms. He's not saying, how is it that somebody in B.C. time saw the incarnate Christ? He's simply assuming that, author in his case, authorial intention 
is being given more to say than an author himself may well intend or know. Now, there are forms of this, pluck strings and others, that, that I think we don't want to say. I don't think we want to say that what David says is not intelligible to his own frame of reference. Typically, the way this was handled is David speaks and he uses, whether he knows it or not, hyperbole. And hyperbole means to attach itself in time to a different referent. But Psalm 22 meant what it meant to those who heard it. Now, this is a not an easy thing to talk about. I think it takes a lot of skill. But I do think that searching, if, if one is calling authorial intention something like the recovery of the mental, temporally bound intentions of an author, one has begun to thin out considerably what is meant by inspiration and also begin to show what kind of space has now opened up between the modern mind and the mind of the earlier tradition, which simply assumed that uh, there was no, I mean, let me state it negatively, the, uh, to the best of my knowledge, wrote a commentary on Colossians. One of the things I found intriguing, one would search in vain for any treatments of Paul's letters that read them independently of each other. Uh, when this begins to happen, it happens in the area of controversy that has risen, arisen after the Reformation. So Bishop Davenant writes a commentary on Colossians because it had begun to figure into a debate about uh, the treasury of merit and that kind of thing. But no, no interpreter, typically no interpreter, read the letters of Paul independently of one another, much less constructed a historical account of which one is first, which one's second, which parts uh, look like, you know, so the, our modern account, we start with first, we start with Thessalonians because it looks like it has a view that Christ is coming back right away. And then we move and we have, a, we set this all up. That project w w didn't mean anything to, uh, to, to antiquity. And in point of fact, the reason, you know, you, you, all, you all know these, you know, the, the books of the, Paul's letters are in, in the order of, of length, from Romans to Philemon, with a couple notable exceptions. Uh, and I try to argue in that commentary that the, that, uh, that the reason that there's slippage, and it's, it's only really in one or two places, I think, I can't remember, now I'm going to make a mistake, your, your listeners can pointed out. It's the, the uh, relationship between Ephesians and Galatians, I think. But in any event, that allowed the prison letters to be lumped together so that almost all interpreters read Romans as the, 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 the sum total of the entire letter collection. It's got everything in there. And then Paul moves into, at some point in his life, he, he goes to prison, and then he passes the mantle on to to Timothy and so forth, and that this is all mapped out in the way the letters cohere with one another. But a modern quest for 
did Paul write Colossians? Oh, at what point does the Colossians account of, uh, of uh, ontology become different than the occasional letters? It seems to me that that kind of a question uh, is handled differently by the canonical form. The canonical form just sees this as an evolution and an understandable one. Paul is in prison, therefore occasionality begins to disappear. He can't, he, he suddenly discovers that his letter writing is a far more effective missionary. It's got far more capacity. It's like you and me when we, we say, well, look, I'd like to preach a sermon on Sunday, but I'm also, I, I think I'd have enough to say that what I would really like to do is publish those and send them to a, a new horizon. And I think Paul, uh, Paul, that's beginning to happen to him. Uh, he's beginning to be aware of that. But that's a very different, the canonical form is delivering an account of authorship there that is different than uh, the modern one, I think. That's really helpful, Chris. Um, I think that it, uh, you, you really adeptly sort of um, help, help us all to recognize the way in which canonical shaping impacts theology and vice versa. I, and circling back, I really liked what you said about hyperbole and the necessity of sort of thinking about how the literal sense uh, might be mobilized beyond itself um, without losing its own internal um, sort of uh, intentional referentiality there uh, and might be moving toward an extential, ex, you know, an extended sort of frame beyond it. Um, that's very helpful. Um, how about we we jump to something different, uh, just to kind of keep things uh, moving along and uh, and to learn something new about you. Uh, this is kind of fun. We're going to do a speed round here, um, and so the idea of the speed round is we're going to ask you a couple questions, um, and you just give an off the cuff answer. You don't get to defend your answer. We just hear what you think. So it's a it's a sort of a brief uh, a brief response is the idea here. So it kind of keeps things moving along. Yeah, like a, so like a ten second response. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what up-and-coming scholar should we read? Gosh, it's, uh, I think reading all these antiques is very exciting. I, I find um, my eyes are always open to Aquinas as one of the best readers of Scripture. Uh, modern folks. Uh, I, oh, I, I thought you were I, saying Aquinas he, is up-and-coming. Well, <laughs> he, he, may, he may be in, yeah, in, in, in a way of thinking. I think Matt, the Matt work Matt's doing on the, on the Trinity, I think uh, that was right out of, you can see it's close to, to the things that I, that I've been uh, thinking about, I, I, I there are things I'm really tired of. I'm, I'm a little tired of new perspectives on Paul. I, gosh, I, I, I you know, <laughs> I mean, surely uh, we we've rung all the changes on that one. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you're, you're, that sort of goes into the maybe the uh, you know the the we had another question on the most overrated book. Uh, so maybe you're thinking all the ones on the new perspective uh, might be the the most overrated. No, uh, how, about, should, how about this question? When you then? told me, when you say ten seconds, it boy, it does. It, that's that's a hard thing. <laughs> I get a lot. I get a lot of. Uh, John Bear's a bright guy. I think the work he does, I learn oh, yeah. from. Um, Absolutely. Uh, my colleague Radner is a brilliant guy. He's hard to follow. Um, he's hard to read. Uh, but yeah, Kevin Rowe. I've, I've learned some things from Kevin. Uh, Richard Balkum has written some very good books. I've been blessed to have good colleagues. I, if any, it may be that I was really spoiled by by being a close friend of Childs because it's hard to find 
people that are more curious intellectually than he was. Uh, he was constantly wanting to learn more. Yeah, that's, that's often the hallmark of a great scholar. My dissertation director, David Ani, that's exactly how I would describe him. All right, here's another Absolutely. question for you, though. Uh, what's something you find embarrassing? Embarrassing. I think that the one thing I find embarrassing is, uh, uh, they, to use the word, word unassuming, is a, to me, a real tribute. And I don't like, I find embarrassing uh, people who are not unassuming. Uh, I, I don't, I think humility, curiosity, uh, uh, a, a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief uh, is to me, a whiz, is a sort of wisdom. And I, I don't, so, so uh, and these are not characteristics I don't think any more that we really value. You're the father of many children, I, I think, Matt. And uh, what it takes uh, to, to develop the character in children along these lines in today's age is um, is a real uh, a real takes a lot of wisdom. All right. From that serious note. Um, all right. Time for a knock knock joke. Um, you, you, but you, you start this one. Knock, knock. Who's there? I don't know. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll, I'll try starting one. Um, uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Nobel. Nobel who? Nobel. So I knock. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's hard to extract me from uh, from the uh, Supreme Court hearings and, and the depths of origin. I I, yeah. I apologize, but uh, you, you you needed a knock knock joke. It was just what you needed, I think. Um, I'll tell you who what my dog keeps me uh, on the straight and narrow on this. You know, they're pretty they're unfiltered. Uh, dogs they tell you what they want and they demand it yeah so do little kids there's no doubt about that i bet all right you ready yep. is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe no oh wow that's confident um yeah all right what's what's one <laughs> what's one view that you held and expressed in your earlier scholarship that you now want to retract publicly and on record Gosh, that's a good question. I feel like, uh, you know, they had that thing in Christianity Today, you know, how my mind has changed. And Elizabeth Ochtemeyer wrote, they asked her to write, she said, I've never changed my mind. I've, I'm completely sure of the things I said, and I don't intend to change my mind. I, I mean, in a way, I don't know that, that there are things I would reformulate. There are, there are projects I have taken up that I do not think are very easy ones. I think the book of Jeremiah is an extremely difficult book to understand. Um, I, I, you know, Isaiah, I gave it my best, and I think I, I, th I, think I learned a lot about Isaiah in trying to track the, uh, the canonical form uh, even Ezekiel, I think you know. I, sort of, I think you can come to terms with Ezekiel, but uh, the book of Jeremiah is a. I, I wrote on Jeremiah. My, I wrote my dissertation on Jeremiah. I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, I I wouldn't want to say I know very much about the book. Uh, I I know what I know, but I I wouldn't. I I sort of came away thinking that's a that's a very difficult book. Who's 
at the level of canonical form. I think it's very hard to know. Yeah. All right, moving on from our speed slash non-speed round there. Um, uh, a question, you're quite critical at various points in the book of narrative as an overarching category for understanding the coherence of the Bible. Um, and we've had this theme in the uh, several on-script interviews now uh, in the past, but from different angles. So why do you see it as problematic as, as a kind of overarching category for thinking about the coherence of the canon and what alternatively might you give um, or propose as um, that which gives the canon its coherence? I just think at the level of the final form, which I take seriously, I don't view the canonical form as sort of raw uh, material that has to be baked in an oven. Uh, that that Joe Blankensop, I think, his account of the book of Isaiah is that it's a kind of container in which there's a baseball mitt and a ping pong paddle and a bat and a, a lost uh, football. And so there isn't any, isn't any sense to the way it looks. So you, it's incumbent upon the interpreter to pull that stuff out and put it in some kind of order. Now, I think that's N.T. Wright's project as well. I think it's many people's project. Uh, but the Bible doesn't sit in that form. It, uh, there are four Gospels. I think Kierkegaard was right. It's precisely at the place where the, the book doesn't have a tidy beginning, middle, and end that it confronts us with its verticality. And I think narrative has a tendency to, to, to domesticate uh, the way the Bible uh, is meant to work. So at one level, it's simply an observation that, yeah, uh, Genesis uh, purports to be before Second Chronicles or, or, or Malachi, fair enough. But it doesn't look to me like an index that has won out uh, over, over all others. I think typology, starting and stopping and doubling back, tends to be more the way, uh, the, way the Bible works. There are some classic examples of, of narrative, Stephen's speech. But look how selective it is, it, 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 and it's, it's driven by a point he wants to make at the end about failure. Uh, there are economic, uh, there are economic, uh, you know, First and Second Samuel uh, purport to tell the history of a thing, and, and all. But the, the very fact that the, there, that the narrative of of the Deuteronomistic history sits alongside a prophetic account. Uh, and both of those things are part of what is called prophecy, ought to tip us off right away that the Bible isn't like a, it isn't a story like, like other stories. I, I've never read Francesco Murphy's uh, book, but I, I've, I've loved the title, God is Not a Story. Um, but my heroes are Pascal and Kierkegaard and... Uh, and in that sense, I think when the Bible uh, sort of gets in our face and refuses to cooperate with the way we think about time and story, it, it's at its most effective. Mm. And, and just a quick question. Um, 
it's probably not a quick answer, but uh, and you deal with this in the book. When you talk about the form, so, okay, if it's not narrative, you're, you're wanting to attend to the final form of the Bible. Um, which final form are you talking about? Because you could have the MT form, you could have the Septuagint, and which Septuagint form? And, you know, you've got the um, material at Qumran and, and so on. So there, there's, there's not exactly one form in the tradition, in the Christian or Jewish tradition. So what do you mean when you say final form? What shape? I try to handle this in the middle part of the book where I've learned a lot from Childs on this. He, he, you know, he said there's a search for the Christian Bible. By that he was simply acknowledging that in its translational dress, it, in the Old Testament particularly, it never settled into one form. And you're, you're making this, this point. On the other hand, I think there are thicker and thinner forms. And I think the thinner forms are explicable when we understand the thick ones. And one can see why the writings is a classic case. You have the short books organized according to the festivals of Judaism. On the other hand, you have accounts where they've been taken and redistributed. Like there's a sort of gravitational character to some of these books. Ruth can sit quite nicely uh, uh, at the end of Judges. It also is a brilliant example of the woman of valor at the end of Proverbs. So that listing makes sense. I, I think it's more useful to try to establish what looks like a thick arrangement and then to try to account for the other movements. Uh, and I think that this, is, this can be done uh, I don't, there's some of these things will also thin out considerably if you look at them closely. The Book of the Twelve at Qumran, surprisingly, Francis Watson of all people, because it really wasn't part of his project, but I, he did dig in deeply there, really did want to show that for all the variety and, and a lot of the Book of the Twelve is in, you know, piecemeal form, the argument is fairly clear that the form we have in printed English Bibles uh, is the form that they had as well. And in one unsealed version, fourth century version of the New Testament, it looks as though they have taken the books with superscriptions and put them together. And this has forced a, a different, this has created a different reading rather than Hosea, Joel, and so Amos it has taken Hosea and Amos and put them together. But even though that that's the case, I mean, one could at least try to understand what happened. But even in the history of interpretation, uh, the Greek fathers never, never made anything out of that difference and don't see anything really at stake in it. Uh, one of the, one, uh, what, let me just stay with this for a second because I think, uh, I think one, one's often misled here. The location of the prophets as the last part of an English printed Bible with which we're familiar, with Malachi uh, arcing over to Matthew, one of the things that's striking is if you go to a book like Lee McDonald's The Canon Debate, he's printed out in the back all of the listings of the orders of the book. In not one list is Malachi the last book. Uh, it's usually Esther or Daniel, 
in some of those Greek lists, frankly, uh, the prophets uh, are in the middle, and it's clear that the writings are at the end. Uh, I, I would love to have a graduate student who would, who would go to work on showing where it was that Malachi became the last book of the canon. I have a hunch it's the parish it's the Paris polyglot, and I think Luther or uh, I think Luther, who's really cribbing from uh, uh, that particular uh, uh, text version, it was at the time people used these polyglots to learn Hebrew. You know, I mean, it was a was it, it was an easy if you didn't have Jewish teachers that would work Jacques Lefebvre and others, but uh, I think my point here is that is that there are, however, thicker, more settled accounts of order that are helpful in guiding and explaining why different orders emerge. Yeah, so we have like a thick order being the the Pentateuch is. You know, there, there's not people aren't putting Deuteronomy in front of Genesis, and so so there's a settled order there. But it, it's interesting to think in terms of certain and, and the twelve kind of hang together, but in different orders. And um, it's interesting to think about um, the canon itself as something where there's a settledness to it, but yet an unsettledness, and there's there's some kind of reshaping that that's happening. My only footnote there is on the twelve, and I'm, I can get touchy about this. I don't think, I don't think there's ever any history of interpretation. And I see history of interpretation is important. I mean, I, you know, it's like saying that everybody read Luke and Acts together. Well, the only problem is that they didn't. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you, you don't. That's a modern invention. There's nothing wrong with it. Clearly, Luke and Acts are 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 kindred material. But John always separates. There's always a fourfold gospel collection. David Trobish has pointed this out, and frankly, the 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 movement of the books in the twelve is a is a piece of graffiti. It just doesn't it doesn't gain any traction. Hmm. Um, so let me jump in here as our time is running along, and we ordinarily, Chris, do a second speed round, but I. I want to forego it, um, partly because I'm desperate to hear more stories about Brevard Childs. You told us such a delightful one about him, him, um, you know, repurchasing his own tweed jacket. Uh, what else have you got in your bag on Childs? Well, you know, there was, in in the old days, we didn't, you know, you had to hand your papers in on time and stuff, and so he would set on the syllabus. He would say, "Paper due, April the thirtieth," and. Uh, Students would try to get around that by sneaking into his into the hall where his office was, and slipping the. They had a there was a there was a transom if my memory's right over the door, and tried to throw it over the door, put it under the door, only to have him take it from the other side. <laughs> this is at midnight now, <laughs> so some student sneaks in, puts the paper under the door, and a hand takes it on the other side. Now, I. Don't know, don't know whether that's true or not. And uh, I, he had some great, he had some great quotes. Uh, one of the ones that uh, is just probably about narrative. You know, Bernard Anderson had written Understanding the Old Testament, went through I don't know, 36 different printings. The guy bought two or three second uh, residence secondaire with with the money. And Bernard Anderson was a gem of a guy, and everybody loved him. And I think Childs and he were good friends. But somebody asked him one time, what did he think of understanding the Old Testament? 
Now, I don't know. Maybe you don't know this book. Mm -hmm. do, do you know I do, the book? Yeah. I mean, I it, know. you know, it, it, it was a, I mean, particularly in the UK, it had a different title, but it was a, it was a textbook. I mean, it's what all of us would like to have happen to our books. I mean, that thing sold like hotcakes. And somebody asked Childs what he thought of understanding the Old Testament. And he paused and he said, it's better than the Bible. And what he meant by that was uh, he's, he's so simplified by, re, by recasting the thing that, of course, it was an, it was an arch comment. He, 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 uh, again, this gets to the issue of narrativity. It made too much sense out of the Bible. Uh, it it, it uh, domesticated it. Uh, right. Um, uh, but he had that he had that ability to throw these little uh, one-liners uh, out. Uh, but um, toward the end of his life, you know, he had Meniere's disease, this thing where they he got Lyme disease, you know, the tick thing. And it was he had one of the first cases. Lyme is in uh, the city of Lyme is in Connecticut, and he lived in the country and chopped wood. And Lyme ticks are carried by deer, and the area around New Haven, Connecticut, had had a lot of Lyme disease. And he got one of the first cases, and no one knew knew what it was. And if you let that thing get in your system too long, it will wreck your electro electric board in your your your. your your system, and so he had to have a he had to have a nerve cut in his ear because he had developed this vertigo that you get from uh, from the from Lyme disease. And I'd never forget he continued to lecture, and he would go in the classroom and lecture and come down. This is a true story. Come down to the restroom and throw up. I mean, this thing was really hard on him. And he, he just never complained about anything, you know. Was that that was that generation. He'd been an infantryman in World War II, you know. He uh, so there, there, that's enough. I could go on. He was a good friend, and um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, can I tell one more? I, Lee Keck is a very good friend of mine. His wife had Alzheimer's. And he loved. He lovingly took care of her for ten years. And uh, he said, "I'm a I'm a widower whose wife is alive." She didn't know who he was anymore. And eventually, she passed away. And the Kecks and the Childs. Child Keck was the dean of Yale Divinity School. Lived ne near one another out in the country. And when Brevard Childs died, he fell down the stairs and he 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 didn't survive it. He was in his eighties. Uh, they were both alone, and I got a phone call in Toronto uh, from Lee, and he said, uh, "Are you? Could I? Could I? I've got some news I want to share with you." And I said, "Well, that's that's great, Lee. What is about eight thirty in the morning?" He said, uh, "Let me put Anne on, and this is Childs's wife, and she was on the telephone, and they were on the telephone together." And I said, "But it's eight thirty in the morning. What is Anne doing over at Lee Keck's house at eight thirty in the morning?" And he said, we're getting married, and we want you to do the, the wedding. And I said, I mean, I, <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. They'd, know, they'd all known each other for so long. It'd be like, you know, you, you marrying your, I mean, it was, just, it was just so strange. 
and yet you didn't want to say, you can't do that, or what are you talking about? And they've been now married for five, five or six years. Maybe it's been longer and just as happy as they can be. And they're not two people more on a, I mean, Lee Keck and, and Childs are just very different people. I mean, they both, both academics, you know, and they lived in a similar kind of universe, but uh, good for them. Yeah, and, so uh, did, uh, you know. did, the, did the, your sort of, um, uh, the disruption this caused to your psyche, did it sort of melt away by the time you did the wedding or was it still like, I can't believe I'm doing yes. this? Yes. Yes, it did. And one of the other funny things, Lee's a good friend. He's 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 ninety now, I think. He he two or three years ago, he he phoned me out of the blue and he said, "Would I preach at his funeral? Do the sermon at his funeral?" And again, it's sort of like, "Well, what are you supposed to say?" And I paused, and he said, "Don't get your date book out yet." It's such a cl- it's such a great Lee Keck story. Yeah, that is. Well, those are all yeah. marvelous stories. Wow. I, yeah. I, I mean, I just want you to go on and on and on. Um, we probably shouldn't, though. Um, there's so much that I want to talk about about your book too. That's the problem. Um, I really in- I really enjoyed, especially your part three. I have to say, I'm probably not going to be surprised to hear that. that that's uh, that's where I felt like you were breaking the most new ground, and what excited me the most. I mean, the whole book's terrific, and it builds. Uh, so you can't really um, appreciate part three fully without you know reading part one and two. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know your work on ontology, I think, is particularly exciting. Um, one of the, the things that I think was really helpful that you did that actually bridged part one and part three was where you talked about the divine name uh, and especially um, sort of the plurality of the divine name, Elohim and, and uh, Yahweh, and uh, talked about um, how this might be uh, something that's a template in the Old Testament uh, that we see then mobilized around the idea of kurios uh, and um, uh, the, the sort of the, the multivalence of kurios. Uh, in the New Testament, could you could you briefly lead us through a little bit of that, and then maybe we'll probably need to wrap up with a final question about church application. Um, can you do a little bit on that for me? Because I just yeah, thought that was really helpful. Uh, I mean, I th- think you know uh, you've got a you've got a personally revealed God uh, who gives His name, uh, whose name is tied up with the promises that he is making and keeping through time. I think that's really what the name means. I am who I will be with you as I show myself faithful to you. That's a mouthful. Uh, But that, I think, is what is at heart in the name. And that's a kind of incarnation. That's that's a, uh, a... specified, risky, sacrificial gift of God himself into the people of Israel. On the other hand, Israel can communicate with all nations through the word Elohim, which they share, uh, which speaks to the, uh, the, the transcendent, the ontological. And this, this binome in French, this partnership, uh, is a, is a particularly profoundly thought through reality. That's partly what I'm what I'm hoping to get through. Von Rod wanted the economic, the salvation historical, to dominate. Therefore, Bernard Anderson's book starts with uh, doesn't start with Genesis one, but Genesis one and and Genesis two and three bespeak this trinitarian reality, and 
So in a way, I tried to use I tried to use an example that I always thought was pretty good was from morning prayer where when you say, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, uh, you're, you're citing a psalm in which the Lord ought properly by convention to be in all caps because it's processing a psalm where the Lord is the kurios, uh, the Lord is a, is a placeholder for the divine name, the revealed name. And yet, at the same time, kurios uh, is the way we refer to the Lord Jesus. And so, the, 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 the morning prayer services go in and out of this. And it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is that the, is that the tetragrammaton? Is that the... Is that the is that the, the Lord Jehovah? Or is it Jesus Christ? Or is it the Spirit? I mean, so, and the answer is yes. <laughs> the, the very fact that this is confounded and not easily sorted out in our mind is the success story of what it means to speak of God and for God to have given himself to be spoken of. And the very fact that we don't you know, we, we, say, we say a psalm, and at the end of it we say, uh, we, we repeat a doxology, glory be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It means that we're refusing to let space open up between this revealed deity and his elected life with Israel, which has now spilled out into the life of the church, to whom has been given a dial tone, or a library card by the one who was sent to do that. And you've got, seems to me you've got to keep, you've got to work along the lines of privileged access, election, personal, uh, uh, revealed life, broken open by the very one who is part of that life. And that's the way the Bible delivers its sense. And the tendency has been, I think, since Kant, to think in too, too quickly in universal terms, as though everybody in the Old Testament is kind of like us, you know, and, you know, they, they, this stuff's only metaphors and, and all. That's one of the things I did. Part one is, for me, the heart of this book in a lot of ways, because I really want to recapture that. Can we be readers of the book? Is I titled that for, for a good reason. Uh, we only get into this life that's being uh, set forth in the Old Testament by a narrow door that is, it's like Luther said, the Old Testament is like, it's like finding, going to the reading of a will and finding out that you too are part of something. Uh, you know, and that dynamic, I really, I'm passionate about, because absent that, the Old Testament is simply some sort of uh, preliminary, inadequate, uh, uh, it's, it's your iPhone 1 en route to iPhone 10, it, you know, is good for what it was, and so forth. No, this, it, I, we need another register uh, I, I, you know, and so I, I thought long and hard about that, and I tried to use the example from French itself. 
You see, when you have a culture that is deeply traditional and it uses words like ancien, what it is signaling is venerability, patrimoine, deeply treasured and held realities that we're privileged to handle. And I just wanted to try to get some way of talking about that. Because I do, Matt, I hope you agree, but I have the sense when I read the early fathers of the church, they are so happy to have a book. And now they have a now they have something. Now they have a book, you know? Now they have a way of, of, of handling what theretofore had been, you know, either uh, hyper-transcendence or uh, ridiculous polytheistic reality. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like the church to again uh, feel this way about this book. Well, I think you, you're, you're obviously doing foundational work in sort of a, an ontology of uh, God and the Hebrew Bible. Um, I think it's super exciting work. It's going to stimulate uh, undoubtedly my own work as I, I need to think about how to integrate what you've done more thoroughly with, uh, with my, own, uh, my own ongoing approach. I'm sure the same is true for Matt Lynch and everyone else in our field, I think, is going to be uh, trying to, uh, to uh, recalibrate uh, as uh, your work is, I think, particularly stimulating. So we're all grateful for it. Um, I, uh, I was wondering if you could offer one last word for us, uh, especially for those who we do have a lot within our audience who are pastors, who are priests, uh, who are Christian leaders in a variety of ways. Um, so much of what you're doing is foundational reframing, right, of how we should approach Scripture as a whole, how we should be readers of Scripture as a whole. Um, what would you be hoping that someone might preach uh, out of this material. If there was something that you hoped this impact preaching in some way, um, what preaches here? Does something preach here beyond just sort of recalibrating the foundations? One of the things that is, I mean, you'll have trouble constraining me, but one of the real things that is so exciting uh, to my mind was the Roman Catholic Church feeling, I think, the pressure to recenter Scripture in Vatican II, uh, recovered via the lectionary all these rich typological associations between old and new. Now, on the one hand, the complaint is, well, you're not getting enough of the old if you're only reading the parts of it that seem to, to come nicely alongside the new. And I disagree with that. I do not, I think that the choices are often extremely penetrating and interesting. It is true that from time to time, this I'm uh, working on the podcast for this Sunday, you know, uh, John complains that an exorcist is, is driving out demons and, and he says, uh, you know, and Jesus says, don't stop him. And our reading is Moses telling Joshua not to, to be concerned about Eldad and Medad. Now, th it seems to me that precisely that kind of thing uh, it helps the reader move back and forth between a world of reference. I think in this case, I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt that Mark himself has in view Numbers 11. But a lot of the choices really don't flow from what the new is making of the old. They're just really interesting, inventive ones. So Ezra is reading 
from the book of the law and everybody falls down and tears their clothes and weeps and the paired reading is Jesus in the temple uh, in the in the synagogue reading from the book of the law and they try to throw him off the cliff so they're also never entirely positive negative ne- I mean the thing goes back and forth and I think preachers I think the lectionary is like a Maserati that never got out of the garage. It, it's actually extremely uh, uh, well thought through and worked out. But most preachers I know are, are tired and they look at the gospel and preach it on Sunday morning. And I'm not going to fault anybody. Anybody who's preaching has, 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 has my uh, good wishes. But there are a lot of riches uh, as a teaching tool and as a pulpit tool, if it, I would say tone down the anecdotes and let the Bible be anecdotal within its own range. And funnily, we worship at the, at, I'm an Anglican, but we worship at the local Catholic church. And I would say that's far more scripturally oriented than a lot of Protestant churches where, where, where anecdote and storytelling is operating a little like allegory used to find. You know, the, where's, where's the Bible underneath all these stories and, and illustrations? Okay, we need an illustration. Let's just make sure that they're crisp and to the point and get out of the way of the Bible's ability to really share its riches with yeah. us. And, uh, well, well, Chris, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great place to, to wrap up this uh, interview. And it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And I know that both Matt and I were required to read uh, you in grad school. And I'm really glad for it um, and have been glad since. So uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with OnScript. You're very welcome. Blessings across the pond. <laughs> Thanks. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 